As you're seated, open to Genesis chapter 1, and we continue our study. If we're here, we welcome you. If you're here online, we welcome you. I know there are a lot of people um, struggling with sickness, with uh, illness, with uh, physical challenges. So uh, welcome online, welcome here in the sanctuary. Let's read Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We praise you for your word, God. We praise you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and grow us from these words. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, in his name. Amen. Well, we are now continuing this study of the beginning, but before we get to the specific study of verses 1 and 2, just as an introduction, I wanted to consider this study of the beginning just as a whole. The study of the beginning is all about God. It's all about God. The, the who God is is seen in what He does. God never acts outside of who he is. He never acts outside of his character, his person, any, in any way that's contrary to his person. In Genesis, God here acts out of his spectacular, resplendent grandeur. You're like, wow, those are some cool $2 words. <laughs> but big words are appropriate for a big God, right? Well, our God is big. Uh, one time in, in middle school, I asked the middle, middle school students, tell us about God. What do you know about God? And he's good. He's big. He's great. I don't know, I can't think of anything else. You have a really small God, (laughs) right? We have a really big God, and He is an amazing God. Lofty words are good and appropriate for God. When you look at the massive scale of the universe, you look at the diversity of life on earth, which we did last week, we didn't even get to the molecular scale, the the molecules and, and the complexity and intricacy of atoms and all of their parts. All of it individually and all of it together just declares and sings and proclaims the glory of God. If you want to know who God is, watch Him work, listen to Him speak in His Word. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. That's what that means. And in the beginning, God. He's the main point of the beginning. In fact, in this chapter one of Genesis, there are 31 verses, and the name God is seen in 31 verses 32 times. And if you add in the pronouns that God uses, and, and the he, and the I, and God is referred to in 31 verses 43 times. This chapter is all about God. We find out the creation of the universe, we find out the creation of earth, but the focus is on the God who's doing the creating. Is it any wonder then that our culture, the world, under the control of the enemy, hates this chapter. The work of God is so wrapped up in the God who works in this chapter that if you can manage to void the one, then you can void the other. If you can undermine God and annul Him from creation, then creation just is a big mystery, right? And, and, the, and life and purpose, and ex- that's an even bigger ministry, uh, <laughs> mystery without answers. 
If you can, on the reverse, void creation from God, then God becomes a mystery. Who is he? Is he powerful? Does he, is he aware of earth and physical existence? Is he aware and involved in creation? Is there any reason for God in the beginning? God answers those questions. Chapter 1 of Genesis reveals God. But it wasn't written in a vacuum. It wasn't signed, sealed, delivered to the 21st century. We need to remember the immediate reason for writing about this God and and why Moses began this way and what he teaches us and tells us about God because Moses wrote it and his intended audience originally was Israel, the newly redeemed and strengthened people of Israel. And we know that Abraham was selected out of all the people in the world for God to begin a nation, and he chose his son Isaac to continue that covenant. He chose his son Jacob. Jacob's, son, uh, Jacob's name was renamed. He was recalled, renamed Israel instead of Jacob in Genesis 32, and we'll get to get through all of that. We'll study all of that together, Lord willing, in the future. But one of his sons, Joseph, was um, sold by his brothers as a slave. He ended up in Egypt, and through the providence of God, became so powerful that he provided for Israel to move to Egypt and take care of them, so that years and generations later, Moses would be the one that God commissions to be the point person for delivering his people out of Egypt. And that's the big picture context of why Genesis was written, along with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But it was during this time in the wilderness that Moses wrote Genesis and that the Holy Spirit inspired these words. And what I want you to do is just bear with me for a minute because the spark for Genesis is actually found in Exodus. If you'll turn to Exodus 3, you don't have to. If you want to just stay here in Genesis, we won't be long in Exodus. But if you prefer to go with us, Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush passage where God is commissioning Moses, the need for Genesis is really seen right here in Moses' own life and in in Exodus, the rest of the people there. In chapter 3, as God appears to Moses in the burning bush, God teaches Moses, I'm holy. In fact, I'm so holy that when I'm present, the ground around is holy. Take your sandals off, right? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's teaching Moses about who he is. Please study Exodus. Please study Genesis. Please study all of the... Exodus is just chock full of who God is. Genesis is so full of who God is. But it's the set of questions that Moses asks that begins to reveal the need for Genesis. Do you remember the the questions um, that Moses asked God? God says um, here... Uh, in verse 5, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. Uh, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The Lord said, I have seen the affliction in verse 7 of my people who are in Egypt, have heard their cry. And he says, now behold, the cry of the people of Israel in verse 9 has come to me. I have also seen the oppression. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses questioned to God, you're going to send me, who am I? Right? That's Moses' first question. We don't have a very good idea of who we are until God tells us. And Moses asked the question, so who am I? But God's answer is even more helpful because it's more important who I am, God says. He says, I will be with you. That's a pretty good answer. Well, who am I that you're going to send me? Don't worry about who you are. I am going to send you. So do you remember Moses' next question? Well, who are you? Right? That's his next. What is your name? Uh, you know, when they ask me who was it that sent me, 
uh, who are you? What is your name? What should I tell them? And so then God reveals his personal name, Yahweh, to Moses. So Moses recognizes at that moment there's a deficiency in his mind <laughs> who God is. I need to know who this God is. And that deficiency extends to all of Israel. Uh, and we're going to need to start at the beginning to find out who this God is. Do you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh here in Exodus? And Moses says, Pharaoh, God says, the Lord Yahweh says, let my people go. What is Pharaoh's question? Who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? I don't, I don't know who that is. And I'm not going to do what he says. Right? If you've ever read through Exodus, you've seen over and over again where God says, you're going to do this because I, I'm the Lord. I'm saying this because I am the Lord. And you're going to do this because I am the Lord. Why? Because they didn't know who he was and they needed to learn who he is and who he was and who he will be because they would be his people. Something else that you see over and over through Exodus is then you will know that I am the Lord. And then Pharaoh will know that I am the Lord. Then Egypt will know. Then the world will know that I am the Lord. God's people were redeemed. They were delivered out of Egypt. And his people begin to learn about him through that redemption. They learn that God is powerful over all the Egyptian gods and over all of creation through the, the ten plagues. There is none like God. But they don't know everything they should know about him. How far does this power extend? I mean, what's the extent of his power? Does it, is it just here in Egypt? Is God only powerful in Egypt or just in Israel? Or how far does it go? How extensive is it? So Moses, in the wilderness, guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit, who was there at the creation of the universe, verse 2 says, writes Genesis to them. And he wrote Exodus to remind them and to teach successive generations who this God is. So, Exodus, if you've ever heard Exodus, if you ever teach Exodus, if you ever talk about Exodus, do not believe or teach that Exodus is the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. That's not Exodus. Exodus is the account of God's sovereignty to redeem and save his people, deliver his people from Egypt. So that's a small distinction. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not Israel's redemption. It's God's work to redeem them. In your notes, Genesis 1 through 11 is not the story of creation. Genesis 1 through 11 is the account of God's sovereign work in creation. Genesis 1 through 11 tells us and teaches us about who God is, not just about the world and creation, the universe. So Genesis really strikes a healthy, reverent fear of God as he reveals to us how mighty and powerful and transcendent he is to create the entire universe and to do it in six days. And that's the real sticking point, right? That's the real sticking point for people. Okay, did God do it in six days? Because if he did, wow, what a powerful God. He deserves a lot of fear and awe and reverence and worship to be able to do all of this in six days. Now, if he's not that powerful, he did it over the course of millions or billions of years, then he deserves some thanks for guiding it along and kind of making it what it is today through the natural occurrences, but probably a little less trust because for thousands of years now, millions of people took Genesis 1 as literal and he didn't really mean it as literal if it wasn't supposed to be taken that way, if God didn't really do it in six days. And here's where this is important for us because the same Holy Spirit who was there, 
The same Holy Spirit who inspired these words in Genesis 1 is the same Holy Spirit who inspires John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the same Holy Spirit who inspired the accounts of Jesus' healings, the account of his death and his resurrection, and how that death replaces the penalty that you owe for your sin when you believe in him and turn away from your sin. But if the Holy Spirit is discredited right at the beginning, what are you going to believe about the rest of what he inspired in the Scriptures? God the Holy Spirit has set his own stamp of approval, his guarantee that this is God's word, this is the truth. So for the people of Israel, this is the beginning of what they needed to learn and know about God and church. This is the beginning of what we need to know and learn about God. Now, we may be familiar with these verses, this, this whole chapter, the beginning of Genesis, but this would have been strikingly different from anything anybody had heard in this part of the world at this time when Genesis was written. Nobody had heard anything like this before. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for hundreds of years, generations. Moses himself had been raised in Pharaoh's house. Acts 7 tells us he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Culturally, that's where they had been called out of, was Egypt and, and their worldview and their story. The Egyptian worldview began with their view of the creation of the world. Now, we can't go into it because there are actually different versions of how the world was created in Egypt, depending on which city you lived in. There were at least five major different accounts, and they're pretty different, for how the world came to be in Egypt. And then, of course, over time, stories change, and they were updated. But they all include some explanation for where the gods came from, how they appeared in a couple of versions. Again, it was the tears of, of a god that formed mankind. Um, but various gods had various roles in the creation of everything else. So that's what, Egypt, uh, that's what Egypt taught about the creation. That's what Israel had been around culturally for hundreds of years. But then as they go out of Egypt, there are other people groups around them with their own creation myths that are strikingly different, again, from, Egypt, from, from Genesis 1, but not that different from one another. Babylon's story begins with an explanation of where the gods came from and how the mother god uh, gathered some monsters and other gods and fought against the other gods, and Marduk led those gods in one and sliced the mother god in half, and she became the heavens and the earth. And that was part of the creation story. The Phoenician myth says that an egg hatched the world. The Persians said that the god of light and wisdom named Mazda, like the Japanese car company, Mazda is eternal and supreme being, but not omnipotent, not all-powerful. Uh, so he created man to help him fight evil. It was a dualistic world where there's always been good and there's always been evil and I need some help. So all of that to say that the Genesis account is incredibly unique among the, the ancient accounts of creation. And if you expand geography, you expand the time a little bit. Uh, the Greeks believed that a giant named Atlas stands at the borders of the earth holding up the heavens, Right? Some Hindu writings say that the earth actually rests on the back of elephants who stand on the back of a giant turtle or tortoise. That's in the Hindu writings. So why do we believe this one then? <laughs> why do we believe Genesis? It's the only ancient suggestion for the creation of the universe that's still even around as a possibility because the other contemporary and ensuing suggestions showed evidence of myth. 
They, they were myths because they had additions. They had subtractions. They had layers of material added over time. There were nonsensical explanations for what we can clearly see is not correct. There was a narrow focus of events and explanations that were local to a people group or to cities. Genesis has just one form. There were no updates. There were no subtractions. There was nothing added or layers. It only had this one form, this one way that it has ever existed. Furthermore, the Genesis account is not ethnocentric. It doesn't focus on, it's not biased toward the ethnic origin of the people who made it up, who invented it. It's not focused on their own cities, their country. The beginning is the beginning of the entire world. Genesis is absent of all of the, the, what's peculiar to us and what's important to us. It's universal. It's a worldwide account. And the Genesis account is relevant for all time, past and present. It still holds true for people 3,500 years ago and for people today who have the James Webb Space Telescope, the most advanced, most powerful telescope that's ever been launched into space. It's simple enough to teach our children, yet profound enough for scholars to ponder and devote their lives to studying. And that's enough introduction for now. (laughs) Genesis is unique because it's the Word of God. The God who reveals Himself in His Word revealed uh, revealed to us Genesis. So if He's teaching us about who He is by the account of His works, He's not going to lie to us. Because he's teaching us about himself. So let's look at Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. God's revelation in creation. We'll look at it in two parts. Number one, the God of creation begins creating in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning. And the natural question is, well, when was the beginning? What, what was before the beginning? What, what was there? Well, it was, it was God. And it was only God. He was there, and, but where was there? Well, it was nowhere. There, there was no space. There was no matter. There was no time. There was just God. If you looked around, it was only God because there was nowhere to look around. <laughs> There's nowhere, and yet he was everywhere because all that existed was God. There wasn't anywhere that God wasn't because there wasn't anywhere, but there was God. And sometimes we can make our brain hurt, <laughs> right? We can kind of get confused. Like if we think about this too much, but all of everything was just God. And so at some point, not in time or space, but at some point when God decided, he began the process of creating everything. The word beginning here means the first phase of a step. So when God decided, he started creating. And here's the beginning. Here's the first step. If you want a verse for that, what, you know, what, what came before that? Well, John 1, 1 and 2 actually comes before Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. But when, when did God begin? When did, when did the beginning begin? You may have heard of the work of Bishop James Usher. He lived in the 17th century. He wanted to get an idea of when the beginning might have been. And so what he did was he, he started from the date of Abraham. We, many scholars believe that Abraham existed in about the middle of the 22nd century B.C., 2150, 2166, And we don't have time to go into the specifics of why. It's probably boring for many of us. But what Bishop Usher did was he started at that point, and then he took the the genealogies of Genesis 11 and Genesis 5, and he worked backward from Abraham because it traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam. And he counted the times that they were alive, and he counted the times that they were dead. And he came up with the year 4004 B.C., 
for how we would reckon that the beginning of time began. Now, we know from other scripture that sometimes in genealogies, some people are left out. There are um, symmetry reasons. There are, it makes it easier to memorize. There are many reasons you leave some people out. But if you skip over too many people, your genealogy just doesn't mean anything, right? I'm a descendant of Adam. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you want to trace that more for us? No. Then, you know, whatever. Okay. So, we could, the Bible writers, Moses in particular, couldn't have left out too many people. So, we come out with an age of no more than 5,000 B.C. for the age of the earth if we use those, those genealogies. Now, that's not young compared to the secular evolution theory of the world. It's a drop in the bucket for the 14 billion years that they claim this universe is. Now, if you allow for a global catastrophic flood, the evidence that secular scientists use today to show the age of the earth and is the same evidence that creation scientists use to show the, the age of the earth. And if you allow for that flood, the dates allow for no more than 5,000 B.C. If you don't allow for that, if you allow for a uniformitarian understanding that everything has been the way it has always been and nothing's ever changed, then you get to millions or billions of years. It's a fascinating study. But that's how you arrive at the age of the earth being no older than 10,000 years from this point. I mean, we're allowing for great um, plus or minus, plus mar margins of error and minus, but let's keep moving through the passage. That, that's how we get to that age of the earth, that when the beginning could have been, about 4,000 to 5,000 B.C. But it says here, in the beginning, God. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. And there have been a lot of different explanations. You've heard a lot of different teachings about this, particularly its use here at the beginning of Genesis. Let's consider it. Elohim is a Hebrew word. And Hebrew is a very expressive language. It, it conveys ideas and images and, and feelings and emotions about things. And sometimes people in a different language can be struck with maybe a, um, a loss of precision because of that. And here's what I mean. This word Elohim is plural of the word El, which means great one. The word El means great one. There's an understanding of power and greatness and majesty in whoever is identified as El, because El can refer to a ruler of people, a judge, a king of people. El can refer to an angel or to a prophet who speaks for God. El can even talk and refer to false gods, to idols. In the scriptures, El is used in many different ways. It just means by itself just a great one of some type. Not necessarily always divinity. So it's context that determines the meaning of the word, how it's used. And here it's clear that it's God because there's nobody else around, right? In the beginning, God. There was nothing else. But why is it plural then? Because the word's not just El, it's Elohim. And in the expressive language of Hebrew, there are certain ways to intensify a word, to, to stress the meaning. And one of them is to make plural what is singular. Because some words are just too important. They're just too big for just a singular word. And so one of the ways to intensify it in Hebrew is to make it a plural of excellence or a plural of majesty. Like when you say El for God, you say Elohim. He's not just the great one. He's the greatest of the great ones. He's the great, the great all-powerful one. You may have heard that because Elohim is plural that it proves the Trinity in Genesis 1. And as you now know, it doesn't prove it, but it doesn't disallow it. 
It begins the seed. In Genesis, there are so many seeds of theology and seeds of truth that are planted and that sprout throughout the scriptures and don't become full until the end. We'll talk more about those, but this is who this God is, the, the great one, the powerful one, the almighty one. In the beginning, God created, Moses says. This is a unique word. This word created, it's only ever used of God. God is the only one who can create. Asa is to make something which man can do. Yatsa is to form something which man can do. Bana is to build something which man can do. But bara, only God can do that. Only God can create. And it, it can refer to God using something to create, like when he picks up the dust of the earth and forms man out of that. He's creating man out of dust. It also is the only word that means to create out of nothing. To make out of nothing. That's the sense of the word here, because until this point, there has been nothing. God calls it into existence. Does that take faith to believe? Yes. Of course it does. Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of things that are seen. Things that are visible. God made everything out of nothing. You may have heard that Latin phrase, ex nihilo means out of nothing. That, that's what Scripture is teaching. That's what Genesis says. That's what Hebrews says. It requires faith to believe that, but no more faith than, as we talked about last week, than that somehow there was something that became everything under the direction of nothing. In fact, I believe it's easier and more rightly placed faith in the powerful someone of God rather than a puzzling missing nothing that somehow produced everything. But God teaches us in the beginning, God created. What did he create? The heavens and the earth. Now we encounter the Hebrew word for heavens here, and in Hebrew there are three possible meanings for heavens. The first meaning is the sky. That's where the birds fly. That's the atmosphere. That's where the clouds are. The second meaning is space. That's where the sun and the moon and the stars are. That's the, the, that's the heavens above us. The third meaning is the, the, where God's glory is eternally and always magnificently praised and present. That's where, that's shortened to where God is, right? The, the heaven, what we think of where the angels are and where God is, even though God is everywhere. So which of the three does this refer to here? Well, again, context determines meaning, and heaven is used in verse 8 to talk about the atmosphere that's created, where the birds fly. Heavens, again, are used as space, where the sun and the moon and the stars are created in verse 14. The third sense isn't mentioned here in chapter 1 of Genesis. Now, we could speculate all day about that. Some people say that it is included and introduced time between verses 1 and 2. We'll cover why that doesn't make sense in a few minutes. But for now, we're working through these verses as we have them. And the reason that I don't believe the third sense is necessarily included is because that's not God's focus here. He's telling us how the heavens and the earth, everything that we can see, everything that we know came into existence and came to be. He creates here the heavens and the earth. So heavens is the sky, the atmosphere, and space, and, and everything out and around us and above us and around us. He creates the heavens and he creates the earth. Now, again, in Hebrew, earth can mean land as opposed to water. It can mean inhabited land or just the entire planet. And the reason we believe it means the entire planet in totality is because land isn't going to be created until day two. 
So what we're looking at when we see the heavens and the earth, after that little discussion there, what we're looking at is called a hendiadis. It's a joining together of two words to create one understanding, to express one thing. The heavens and the earth is everything. In the beginning, God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. So that could possibly, potentially include heaven where God is seated, where he's praised all the time, but that's not his focus. He doesn't really ever explain when he creates that in his word. He doesn't tell us when he does that because that's just not our business. (laughs) for, For God, it doesn't matter when he created that. He created all of this. He created that also. But verse 1 says, when God decided, at a point when he directed, the Almighty, the Powerful One, began created everything out of nothing. Now, one of the glaring missing pieces from this account, compared to the other accounts from antiquity, was the reason that God did all of this. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Because God didn't do it because he needed help fighting evil, Right? He didn't do it because he needed something from us. He didn't need entertainment from us. He didn't need us to do things for him. That was some of the reasons that other people said the gods created humankind. He didn't do it because he needed anything at all. God didn't need anything. The simple implied reason that we have from Genesis 1 is that God started making everything because he decided to start making everything. (laughs) As we progress through the chapter, we'll understand more about what God's doing and how he teaches us about himself. But for now in Genesis, we need to understand that there was nothing that compelled God to start creating. There was no reason that, you know, God, you need to start doing this. God, you should consider start doing this. Nobody suggested it to him. Nobody compelled him to do it. And nobody could stop him once he started either. Nothing forced his hand or made him act. God decided and he started doing it. Not only is that, not only is that power to be able to do all of that, that's authority and autonomy of sovereignty. I'm not acting, I'm not acting, now I am. And now I'm going to begin. And now I'm going to end it. (laughs) When God decided, he acted, and that brings awe to us. That brings reverence to him from us. Now, before we move on briefly, we talked about, I mean, there's so much in these verses. There's so much wrapped up here. We, We could spend so much time. But just think for a minute how this one verse immediately dismisses four false challenges from the world. The first one is atheism or secularism. In the beginning, God. Yes, there is a God. And there are no attempts to prove it to you. There's there's no evidence given to you here other than look at creation. (laughs) There is God. God did all of this. He exists and it's plain by his creation. He is, was, and will be. And you can look around and see him there. Just, it dismisses, it doesn't disprove, it doesn't work against, remember that's not Moses' intention, but it's, that challenge is dismissed. No, there is a God. In the beginning, God. The second one is polytheism. You remember all of the accounts and the stories all around Israel at the time? The gods did this, and the gods fought the gods, and the gods made me. No, no. There's God. There's just one God. And the reason we know that it's just one God, because even though Elohim is plural, the verb created is singular. In the beginning, this God created. So polytheism is out. Pantheism. The Eastern idea that the universe is God. You look around and the the majesty, the beauty, the splendor of creation, God must be his creation. The creation must be God. We can worship creation because that's God. That's what the Eastern ideologies taught, but 
Genesis teaches us, no, God's not stuff. God's above and separate from the stuff that he made. He's unique, he's holy, he's separate. The fourth one is dualism. Again, that idea that good and evil have always existed. There's this struggle and they're even forces and, and they're just always battling together. It's the idea behind the force in Star Wars, the Star Wars movies. It's constant throughout those movies, that, that uh, theology. There is only God and he is only good and only he created the universe. Okay, so Genesis, just in the first verse, dismisses four challenges from the world. God is here introduced, and creation is introduced, and this is the same God who remains in control of creation from this point forward until it comes to an end. In fact, Isaiah 46 tells us, and I think I left this out of your notes, so you can write Isaiah 46, write down Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. God says he declares the end from the beginning. I know the beginning, and I know the end, and I know everything that happens in between, and no purpose of mine will ever be thwarted. Nothing happens. No enemies, no trials, no events without being under the total sovereign control of this same God. Be comforted in that. Friends, brothers, sisters, rest in that truth. Again, as we learned in Peter, entrust your soul to this faithful creator. So the God of creation begins creating, and there's a second part for us to see as we now move into verse 2. Number two in our notes, the God of creation creates methodically. He creates methodically. Now in verse 1, Moses stated that God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, he says, they were without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. You may have heard of these two Hebrew words, formless, or without form and void, tohu, ubohu, those are the Hebrew words. You may have heard those before. The meaning of without form is just that. It's desolate. There's nothingness. The meaning of void is emptiness. It's uninhabited. The two words are, again, another hendiadeth, joined together to form one idea. It's an uninhabited, uninhabitable desolation. There's nothing around you. Darkness is over the face of the deep, Deep usually refers to the surging mass of waters, the seas, but darkness covers the whole thing. And so I thought, well, how do I describe this? How do I imagine what this looked like? So if you will, for just a second with me, if you close your eyes, what do you see? (laughs) That's it. That's what it looked like. (laughs) It was formless, it was void, and there was darkness. You can open your eyes unless you're asleep, and then you should probably wake up. That's what it looked like. I mean, there was, there was nothing. It was, the form of it was void. It was empty. There was nothing there, and there was, there was darkness only. There was no light. Only God could describe to Moses what it was that it was without form and void, and that's the best that our minds can come up with. You can't picture it. You can't, you can't see it. You can't grasp it. But even if, even if you could make out some kind of shape, you could kind of see some swirls and, and masses, there was no light to see it with. At this beginning stage of creation, how do we know that there's anything even there? (laughs) Because God tells us. He tells us it's there, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God himself was defining the existence of it. God defined the existence, and then he told us about it. So if, if we could even have survived being in an environment like that, we wouldn't have known which was up or down or right or left or any which way, but the Spirit. Spirit of God was there defining the existence of the beginning of what God was doing. 
The word spirit can mean wind or breath, but God's breath comes later as he speaks everything into existence. And wind is constantly moving, right? If, if there's wind, then it's moving. If it's not winding, if it's not moving, there's no wind, right? Wind has to be moving. And this word here says that the Spirit of God was hovering. He's hovering right there, defining the existence of creation. And even though it's dark, God can see. Psalm 139, 12 says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God doesn't need the light of this world, the light of the universe to see. He sees everything. But what God is doing here is creating, and he's creating methodically, step by step. He's creating everything just the way he decides and purposefully. Why did he take six days to do it then? You know, we're not told explicitly why he took six days to do what he could have done in six microseconds or less. But as we've said, God works in Genesis, and as he does, he reveals his person. He's revealing, teaching us about his character, and his character is about order and about wisdom and power. He's got very specific lessons for us to learn as we study these days of creation, and among them is that he defines our existence and that he speaks into our existence, and he is our model. He dictates to us what the world is, how it came to be, what we're supposed to do here, He's the sovereign, powerful, wise one, and we depend on him for everything. He's teaching us that. Now, between verses 1 and 2, some people want to add a pause. They want to insert, um, an, they want to maybe call verse 1 an introduction. They say inter- verse 1 is an introduction, verse 2 starts telling us how. Or they want to say that verse 1 was something like a big bang followed by millions and billions of years of the evolutionary process, which is roughly described in the rest of the chapter. Others say, no, there's a, there's a pause, but it's not that long. Between verses 1 and 2, that's where Satan falls from heaven, and God created the earth. It was fine, but then Satan comes down and makes it empty and void and causes darkness to come. And these are all very creative and helpful ways of explaining things that are hard for us to grasp. But grammatically, there is no amount of time or gap or pause that's needed or even permitted in the language that Moses gives us. In verse 1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 begins with a word that we often translate, and. It's called the vav consecutive, or wow consecutive in the Hebrew. And it's, it's a marker of sequence and order. So, in the beginning, here was the first step, God created everything. And, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, it's dropped in many of our English translations, but it's there in the original. And, this happened, look at verse in the middle of verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse 4, and God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, again, it's dropped, but it's there in the original. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Verse 6, and. Verse 8, and. Verse 9, and. It's a step-by-step methodical creating of the world, the universe, everything that we have and see and know all around us. There's no amount of gaps or years or pauses in between any of these. And it goes on throughout the entire chapter. Because what we're seeing is an orderly, systematic, sequential account of creation beginning right where God started. There is no introduction in Genesis, really. Verses 1 through 5 are day one. On day one, he, he began creating and he completed what he wanted to complete on day one. And day two, he started again. It's all happening 
quickly on day one, but in an orderly way. Now, some people say, well, there may not be any any, uh, gaps in the account of Genesis. He may not have meant any gaps in the account, but that's because God was dictating to Moses over six days how he created the universe and everything in it in millions and billions of years. That's called the proclamation view. He could have taken as long as he wanted, but he just he took the course of six days to show it to Moses. That view unnecessarily confuses and complicates the simple language of Genesis 1. Right? No, God said this happened on this day. It would have been very simple for Moses to say, you know, on the first day, God showed me how he did this, and it took a long time. But that's not what Moses wrote. It's just not there. But all of those attempts, all of those, all of those attempts that we've made to change the reading, the simple interpretation have been proposed in order to match the prevailing belief of the culture around us. Never before have God's people attempted to syncretize Genesis 1 with what the other cultures around them taught about the beginning. As we saw for the people of Israel when Genesis was written, everybody knows that it takes multiple gods to create everything. God's people said, no, it just took one God. Only one God. When Christianity encountered Eastern religions and belief systems, the claim was that the universe is just so beautiful. It has to to be God. You have to worship creation as God. It's so diverse. It's so beautiful. But God's people said, yes, it is beautiful because it declares the beauty of the God who is separate and distinct from it. They held to Genesis 1. And so for 3,500 years, God's people have stood upon God's word until the last 200 years where the theory of evolution was proposed and the world has set about trying to convince itself of this theory and others. And their declaration is that now everybody knows you need millions and billions of years to create everything. But the difference now is that rather than standing firm in Genesis, God's people have said, well, maybe And they've twisted and contorted themselves and the scriptures to accommodate the view of the surrounding culture. People object. Evolution is simple, objective science, but it's not. Only if you begin with the presupposition that there cannot be a God, that everything has to have come about accidentally and without purpose and through natural processes, only then will you find all the evidence that you want to find to prove that. And if you begin with the presupposition that there is a God, his word is true, you already have all of the proof that you need, but then you also find that in science, the the evidence is there. The evidence shows that presupposition to be true. It comes down to where you're starting from. And brothers and sisters, we've got to be just as honest about our starting point, our presupposition, as the people in the world are. They are very honest. We are starting with the assumption there's no God. That's how the theory, that's how everything becomes observed and interpreted. The starting point, the basic underlying assumption is materialism. There's no God. Or if there is, keep him out of creation. (laughs) The starting point and basic underlying assumption for what we believe is that God is true and that his word is true. And even if all the rules are changed about science so that it looks like everything we believe is hogwash, We still stand firm in what God has said. We believe this to be true. Now, I've heard some people say, you know, it's it's just so hard to believe that God did all of this so quickly in such a short amount of time. And I've lost track of time here. Oh, we're doing fine. Turn with me to Genesis 21. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 21. Again, this God knows the end from the beginning. 
If you find it difficult to believe that God created everything around us, this, the heavens and the earth in six days, you're really going to struggle with the end. <laughs> really going to struggle. Look at tw- chapter 21. John writes in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What happened? Back to chapter 20, verse 11 of Revelation. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. (laughs) Why is no place found for the old heavens and the old earth? Because the new heavens and the new earth are there. And that God creates like that. (laughs) An entire new set of heavens and earth are created in a split second. So if we struggle with six days, we're really going to struggle at the end when God brings a new heaven and a new earth. What happens here in Genesis is the truth of the sovereign God creating and creating orderly, systematically, and exactly. He didn't do it because he needed to, because he decided to. And it tells us about him. It teaches us about who he is. Now we have a decision to make. Will I reject him, his work, and his word? Or will I trust his word that tells me about his work and about him? Will I learn about him in this word? So where do we go from here, our application? What do we take with us this week? And what do we think about this afternoon and tomorrow and Thursday at lunch? (laughs) Number one in application, God is the sovereign creator. Just know that. Know that. What does that mean for us then this afternoon and and this week? It it means that God knows. God loves. God cares. We go through times. Things happen to us. We go through sickness. We go through serious illness and disease. We we go through a, a flat tire. We go through so many things and we cry out, does anybody even know or care? Does anybody know or love or care? And God does. God knows. God loves. God cares. Is there purpose for any of this stuff? Is there purpose in life? Is there a reason? Yes, God. He gives it to us. There is purpose, but don't look for it within yourself. And don't look for it within anywhere in the world. It's in God. He's teaching us that he is the one who defines our existence. He tells us all about everything that we need to know about life and godliness. He's told us. He's teaching us. So second, an application, embrace his word. Embrace this word. Not just intellectually, you know, not just, you know, I know that uh, this is the truth, but that's on Sunday, so I close this and then I move on with life. No, embrace this word for life, comprehensively, not just agreement, internalizing, but ask yourself again continually the question that we asked last week, am I willing to change what I believe and know to be true, what everybody knows to be true, to believe what God has said? Or will I twist myself and the scriptures into some semblance of agreement so I can believe what God has not said? He tells us all that we need for life and godliness. Here, who will you believe? (laughs) There's the world that tells you you're an accident of chemicals and electric, electric impulses. There's no purpose. But look within yourself and you'll find your own purpose. Or God's word that tells you that he defines our existence. He's created us. He's made us the way that we are. The reason that he wanted us to be this way. What he's after in our life. It's for our good and for his glory. And there is a reason for all of this stuff happening. That's it. God's glory through our 
sanctification, through making us from sinners into saints. Because if you don't know this, God, that's where you'll begin and where you'll end as a sinner. But God tells us in Genesis who he is. He's the all-powerful God. He's the almighty God, and he knows. And he's there, and he cares, and he calls for you to submit to him. We ask you to submit to him. Those who know the Lord Jesus know that he is the Lord, that he was there in the beginning, that through him God made everything, but more importantly, mankind rejected God and fell. We turned away into sin, into rebellion, and now we don't even want to know God. We don't want to know how he created. We don't want to hear any of that stuff. We just want to know about me. And as God tells us about me, about us, he tells us that we have fallen into sin and we need to be saved and we can't do it ourselves. And that's why he sent his son Jesus just like us to be one of us except without sin so that he would give us the righteousness that he earned if we will believe in him. And he'll pay the, he paid the penalty on the cross for our sins, for what we deserved, all of the thoughts, all of the actions, the words, everything we did do and didn't do. God will forgive all of that in Jesus. When we turn away from our sin, we believe in him, and that he rose from the grave to conquer that death, to conquer sin. He did it all for us. And the beginnings of that are here in Genesis, and that's why we love this word of God, because it's complete. It, it's comprehensive. It's exhaustive. It teaches all of us who we are, where we came from, and where we're going, where we can go in Jesus. Father, we praise you for this perfect word. We praise you, God, for your perfect character. God, we want to be like Jesus, Lord. We want to be perfect, but we can't be. Lord, we've tried, and we try continually, and God, we keep failing. But Lord, with you, there is grace there is mercy, there is forgiveness in your son. Father, I pray for every person here, for those who know you and for those who don't know you, God, that you would humble us before you and the greatness of who you are, the holiness of who you are. Father, we, we know that without Jesus, we deserve your wrath forever in hell. But God, we know that there is a glory place where you dwell, where your praises are sung where everything about you is lifted up and exalted all the time. God, that's where we want to be, and we can be there through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would draw us all close to you in him. Father, for those who have never trusted in him as their, as their Lord and their Savior, God, I pray that you would work in them. God, that you would do in them what they cannot do themselves. Father, we praise you for doing what we can't do ourselves in your son. We thank you for creation. We thank you for making us. We thank you for making us new in Jesus. We praise you. We thank you. And we give you all the glory and the credit in his name. Amen.